Hey church, thank you so much for tuning in. I am so excited about the message you are about to hear. More than six months ago, God began stirring my heart to really decide if I believe that there is more to his word than what can be explained through the natural. I believe that the evidence of God's supernatural hand can be traced using science and other natural means. Those methods lead us to a place where we discover that there are things happening around us that we cannot explain. This isn't a new idea. In fact, the scriptures spend a lot of time giving us insight into this unseen realm. This realm is a place not bound by our natural rules, not unlike the upside down we see in Stranger Things. The good news is this, when the impossible hits, we serve the God of the impossible. He moves in ways we do not understand, in ways that we do not see, in ways that we cannot understand. God is at work in the upside down. I pray that this week's message will encourage and challenge you as we discover what's in the upside down. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Today is week three of What's in the Upside Down, and I'll, uh, I'll be honest, I've had a tremendous uh, amount of conversation with people uh, throughout the week on the topic and uh, some of the things that we've been discussing and some of the revelations that uh, perhaps some of you have had as well as some that I have had. And I just want to encourage you that while we are taking a look at how we interpret Scripture, we are taking a look at uh, how the, uh, even the authors and the architects of Scripture interpreted uh, and understood the things that were being written, uh, we are in really no way challenging any of what we would consider to be uh, a part of our statement of faith, the very uh, consistent foundational parts of, uh, of who we are as Christians or even more specifically who we are as a church, we are just trying to make sure that what doesn't happen is that we don't allow the world to create an understanding for us. And, uh, you know, we, we've been through a couple of topics, and uh, the, the first week was uh, Elohim, uh, and we talked about how that inside of Scripture, uh, this word Elohim, which is uh, used sometimes when it's talking about Yahweh, the God as we understand God, and then also it is used to describe uh, really an unknown number of what we defined as disembodied spiritual beings. And so uh, like we have to understand that when the writers were pinning the scripture, they did not interpret the word uh, Elohim the way that we interpret the word God. And some of this kind of births out of this idea of becoming very uh, protective over the, the idea of God within the church. And so we, we, we grow up in Sunday school, moving into the church, and we talk about how there is only one God. There is no other God out there. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And so because we take that, that definition, we translate that every time we see the word God to either mean it's fake and isn't real, so it's something that's imaginary in somebody's head, or it is God of Scripture, Yahweh, and the biblical writers, the authors of Scripture, they didn't see it this way. Uh, they understood that there were, were spiritual beings that existed and that the scripture actually talks about these. So if you want more information on that, please go back to week one. And then last week we talked about all the devils uh, and uh, we really jumped into the, what is the first rebellion. And we're going to get to the second rebellion, the uh, spiritual rebellion in scripture today. But we talked about the first and that was in the garden and the serpent shows up and we have, we have given the serpent a bunch of names, right? We've called him Lucifer. We've called him Satan. We've called him uh, the devil. And really all of those are, are names that we have given him. They're actually not found in scripture. In fact, uh, if we were to take the word Satan, we would find at various points 
words throughout Scripture. It is used to describe uh, men and women. It is described, uh, used to describe the angel of the Lord, uh, and it means adversary. So it doesn't actually, it's not a name that is given to an, an entity. And, you know, I propose the idea that perhaps the reason that the serpent in the garden is not given a name uh, throughout Scripture is because he is not uh, he is not dignified or deserving of the honor of a name. I, I think that the reverse can kind of take place in our minds and we can kind of turn to like a, like Harry Potter world and think like the name that shouldn't be spoken, right? And it's like, oh, I can't say that name. It's so powerful. It's, I think it's the reverse of that because what we see is, is that the, every time the serpent rears its head, it's defeated. There's no victory for the serpent. The serpent is constantly being destroyed. And, and I think that the reason that we don't really get a name is because it just doesn't matter. There is an adversary, and he has deceived us, and we have bought into that deception. And what God is more concerned with than us walking around being able to stomp on the heads of devils is us being able to be in right relationship with him. And so I think a lot of times what happens is we kind of get into this interpretation of what the devil looks like based on like Kronk, right? From the Emperor's New Groove and you've got like Devil Kronk and Angel Kronk and it's sitting here. And it's like, what do I do? And, and we go, oh, well, that, you know, that's silly. We know that, 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 you know, that the devil doesn't look like Kronk, right? Or does he? Right. You know, you know, and, and so what happens is, is we allow mainstream media to kind of interject itself into some of these things that the church historically hasn't done a good job talking about. And so we would believe in heaven and hell, but what do we really know about heaven and hell? We would believe in angels and demons, but what do we really know about angels and demons? And so that's what we're attempting to, to kind of dive into through this scripture. And so uh, last week we talked about all the devils. Today I want to talk about more Satans, more adversaries. I want to take a look at the second rebellion. And there's, not a, there's no way that I can cover all the information that we've that we've gathered for each of these messages. And so we're doing a podcast each week. Uh, and so those are available online, Facebook and YouTube. You can click on them uh, just by going to the Facebook page for citychurch.life and you'll be able to see, we've labeled them very clearly for you, episode one, episode two. And so this week will be episode three. And I, I do wanna tell you that I understand that some of what we're talking about is, uh, is, is odd. Uh, some of it, it, it feels like, like, are we, are we reading a, a fictional book, like sci-fi? What's going on here? And I just want to remind you that, that if you're struggling with this idea of, well, how can heaven and hell look like this? And how can we interpret, you know, the, 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 the serpent and any fallen disembodied beings to look like this. Just, just remember, if we're trying to interpret this, that, that as Christians, we, we also recognize that Jesus died and was resurrected. We also expect him to return and come and set up a new world. Like our faith is our faith is built on the supernatural and the unknown. It's, it's not like we're going to all get a giant mailer uh, in our mailbox one day that says, hey, tomorrow at noon you have an appointment with Jesus. He'll be coming back, and please come in your best suit and show up at your voting precinct so that you can be judged. It's, it's not like that, right? That's not the picture that we have. And so if that's not the picture that we have, then let's not try to superimpose the, the world's view or expectations for Scripture onto Scripture. All right. So one of the things that we talked about in that first week was this council, right? So the Elohim, and I, I was in Psalm 82, and, and we looked at the fact that it, God uh, rules, God judges in a council of other Elohim. All right. And, and, and in this uh, Psalm, he's actually uh, asking them why it is that some of them judge unjustly. So there is some type of council that's set up. There is some type of program of watchers, those that are actually looking in on what humanity is doing, and they are writing these things down into uh, uh, some series of books. This isn't because God doesn't know what's going on. It's because there is a record being made so that there are witnesses 
okay? So that it's not just us and God sitting here going, you know, well, God's making this up. God wants to make sure that the testimony and, and the things that are presented are known by many so that the witnesses can stand up and say, yes, it is as God says that it is. And so there's a council that exists for us. Uh, and so just keeping that in mind, uh, I want to jump into the book of Job, and I want to do this intentionally because Job is the oldest written book that we have, all right? So we don't know chronologically exactly where it takes place. There's a lot of debate among scholars uh, exactly when the story of Job takes place, but we know that it was penned, it was written before any other uh, portion of the, well, the ancient text, the Old Testament, okay? So looking at that, I want to just kind of set a standard that I think is set for us in Job, and we'll begin here in Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And you'll notice this, this uh, little B here, and I've been leaving all these little annotations in the scriptures for you uh, in this series. A lot of times I delete them so as not to cause confusion, but that is, that turns you to footnote B inside of this portion of text, and that lets you know that what it's actually saying is that th themselves before the Lord and the adversary also came among them, okay? So, so the, the, the uh, interpreters, the translators, they're looking at this. They understand that we've given this name Satan, kind of we've accepted that as a name. But what the scripture says is that there was an adversary that was with them. And what I want to specifically look at is this term sons of God. Uh, I want to establish what it, what it means here because when we jump into the second rebellion, this terminology is going to be used again. This is used five times in the Old Testament, and every time that it's used, it means the exact same thing. The writers intend the same thing. And so uh, I've pulled up what is the interlinear uh, translation, and so this is going to give us the English and the Hebrew uh, kind of superimposed here for us to look at. And so uh, uh, the, the passage here, and again, we have to restructure sentences so that they kind of, uh, they kind of meet our grammatical expectations, all right? But in the Hebrew, uh, they'll be structured differently. So I'm going to read it as it is structured in the Hebrew, okay? So Yahweh before to present, to present themselves of God the sons and when came a day, and there was uh, Satan uh, to Yahweh, and said among them, Satan also, and came. So it doesn't make a lot of sense when we read it that way, because these, the, the structure of the sentences don't flow with the English language. But there are, the way that it's broken down, we are able to get a picture of what some of these terms actually mean. And so kind of zooming in, we see that Yahweh, and so this is the proper name for God, the creator, uh, the, the, the name above all names, uh, uh, that there was a group that came to present themselves, and it is, they are uh, of God the sons. And so, Literally, the translation that breaks down here, and you'll see this Ha Elohim, uh, because we're talking about Yahweh at the beginning, we know that, uh, that we are here using, uh, when it says sons of God, we know that we're talking about the Elohim that is Yahweh, not just a random Elohim. And so the sons of Yahweh come into his presence, and the adversary is with them, okay? So the, the, the writer here, and just this instance, and again, uh, in the uh, podcast, I'll lay out the additional, just because of time, I, I can't get to all of them. Consistently in Scripture, we see that this is a picture of some disembodied spiritual beings that are referred to as being God's sons, His creations, okay? All right, so... So that being said, I want to flip over to Genesis chapter 6 into the beginning of the second rebellion. So when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Now, this is not uh, trying to make us think that there were no sons being born. In Genesis chapter 5, we're given a full genealogy. We understand that there were sons and that there were daughters. But right now, we're going to be talking about the daughters and an impact that is 
uh, to be had on them. Verse 2, the sons of God, using this term again, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. So this sons of God, as we see referenced in Job chapter 1, we see it five times in the Old Testament, brought right here into Genesis chapter 6. It says that the sons of God uh, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. And and I want to remind you of of a couple of things here that being in the book of Genesis, we have the same author that we had when we were in Genesis 1 at creation and when we were in Genesis 3 at the fall of humanity with the serpent's temptation. We are not talking about a different uh, author that's coming in and adding on to the story, but this is a continuous story that's laying down a series of rebellions. Ultimately, once we get through Genesis 11, we will step into kind of like what we would consider to be the the modern story of God. So moving forward uh, or, or moving backwards, we're getting a picture of how these disembodied spiritual beings, whether some of them were angels or some of them were uh, Elohim, have made some type of fall, okay, some type of rebellion. And the other thing that I'll point out is that we are talking about sexual abuse. Uh, we are not talking about these, uh, these sons of God uh, wooing the hearts of daughters or, or, or the hearts of these women. It says that they they took them. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now back to the interlinear, and I'm not going to put the image up because it's hard to read, but the, the way that those words break down is they chose whomever of all wives for themselves. And it says they took. All right. Now, Interesting parallel for you here, remembering that these are, this story is written by the same author as Genesis chapter 3. And let me just pause. This is something for me. I just want to say this. Like, this, this stirs my heart to love Jesus even more. And I'm going to tell you why. Because it continues to show the, 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 the miraculous integrity of Scripture. I keep looking at the, the way that the dots from Genesis to Revelation continue to connect, and it continues to just solidify in me the authenticity and the authority of Scripture. There aren't accidents that are taking place. This isn't a bunch of people playing a joke and writing down a little story. Watch this. So, so it says that they saw that they were good and they took for them to be their, their own, right? Genesis chapter 3, what did we see? Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took it. And so the, the, the author here is saying that we have a similar situation now with these Elohim. They see that the daughters of man are good and they take them. They take them for their own. Now, you, you might be saying, okay, well, you know, Jim, I get it. You're looking at the book of Job and you're interpreting it this way. I'm not the, the, the only one that interprets it this way. And, and in fact, this isn't a modern idea. Jesus' brother, Jude, actually interpreted these stories the exact same way. In Jude chapter 1, beginning here in verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Okay, so these disembodied spiritual beings that did not do what they were supposed to do, they left their dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, I'm not sure uh, uh, that uh, all of my uh, notes got loaded right here. Kat, uh, were you able to get that flipped for me? So this didn't show up. Uh, I don't have my uh, phone on me either. But Jude chapter 1 verse 7, uh, the, the, the writer here uh, in verse 7, he continues this thought and he compares them. He says, just as the situation that took place with Lot, right? And what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah was that you had angels, okay, who were in uh, Sodom and a group of men saw them and they came and they wanted to have sex with these angels. 
And it might seem really uh, crude here, but the idea was that they wanted to be able to, uh, so it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, we're getting a clear picture here of what took place, and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, okay? So there was this mind, this understanding from Jesus' own brother that what was taking place here when these angels fell into sexual immorality, that it was the same type of situation that we will see uh, when we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is a, a, a position of humanity indulging in some type of sexual behavior with these uh, angels, with these uh, disembodied spiritual beings that are on earth when they are not supposed to be. Now, uh, this, this idea or, or, or this interpretation doesn't even rest right here in Jude. Uh, uh, it also is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was a, a way of thinking during the time of Jesus. Uh, it is in the book of First Enoch. It is in the book of Jubilees, uh, the wisdom of Ben Sirah. This is a book uh, that was written about 200 years before Christ, and it writes extensively about this interpretation of Scripture. So what I, here's what I'm trying to say is I'm not bringing to you an idea today that's like, ooh, I found this guy from the TV show Ancient Aliens, and he has this crazy idea, and I like it. I'm, I'm saying that there are a group of scholars that go way back, okay, to even before the time of Christ. This is how the Jew at the time of Jesus interpreted Scripture. This is how they interpreted these Scriptures after the time of Christ. And so this idea that these sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful and took them for themselves is not a new idea, and it is supported by commentary within Scripture, and it is supported by commentary outside of Scripture. So let's go back to Genesis 6. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This is not referencing how old uh, mankind will live on average, because we know that Noah is going to live for hundreds of years uh, even after the flood. We know that his descendants are going to live, some of them, into 100 in 80 years. What it's talking about here is that, that something bad is happening on the earth, and God is giving a warning that in 120 years, judgment will come. This just speaks to, to the idea of grace, that God doesn't, he's not swift to come and bring judgment. Instead, he is patient in hopes that those who are far from him will return to him. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And so, again, this little footnote, I want to pop it up for you, actually, just so that you can see the footnote right here says, or giants. And so there is a, a, a picture of what these uh, descendants of this sons of God and daughters union looked like, this rebellion on earth, what it looked like. They were seen as giants when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, one of the arguments that uh, will be made that from, from a modern perspective that this is not talking about uh, any type of Elohim, any type of sons of God, but instead we're mistranslating this, is where Jesus talks about angels, and he makes the comment that there is not a need for them to marry, right, to be engaged in any type of marital uh, activity. And so just because it says that they don't doesn't mean that they can't. And also we have to understand that we aren't just talking about one group of spiritual beings that fall under this umbrella of angel all the time, all right? Or one group of spiritual beings that fall under this umbrella of Elohim. Uh, even in the book of Genesis, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Isaiah, we see pictures of 
different types of disembodied spiritual beings, uh, cherubim, seraphim. We see that we have the sons of God. We have the watchers. We have the messengers. So we really aren't sure exactly which specific group this is, except that we know that they are in the council of God because the sons of God come into the throne room of God and the adversary is there with them in Job chapter 1. Let's look at Job uh, 38 verse 4. So uh, God, and, and so if you're looking at this, is, uh, is actually speaking here, and he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 6, on what were its basis sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God now is speaking directly in the book of Job and he references the sons of God, same interpretation inside of this uh, interlinear text. And we continue to get this picture of this council this group of people that are in the presence of God, this disembodied group of spiritual beings in the presence of God. One of uh, Job's friends or acquaintances here uh, says in Job 15 verse 8, have you listened in the counsel of God and do you limit wisdom to yourself? And so there is an understanding that goes beyond Job, that goes beyond even what God says, but even into the communities in which people are living and they are using this consistent language that there are is a counsel that God engages in conversation with, that he leans into, that he listens to. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is all-knowing. No, he doesn't need this. But God is about integrity. He is about integrity. We live in a world today, I think just about as corrupt as any that we've seen in the last probably couple of thousand years, not quite Genesis 6. And, and there are times when I go into a counseling situation and I am fully aware of the fact that I can go in and be in a counseling situation and that anybody can say anything that they want, that they want. And I have nothing but my own testimony to be able to defend myself. And so oftentimes in a counseling situation, especially if I think that it's something that's volatile that I'm having to navigate with somebody, I will bring somebody else into the conversation. We will call on our elders and I will call them up. I've done it. I have called them up at midnight and said, uh, I need you to help me with something. I've had my elders hop in the car and drive over here because we were navigating a, a situation with somebody who was acting erratic and they were here in 15 minutes because it's not because I don't trust myself or because I don't have the capacity to tell the truth, but it's because I understand that if accusation comes, right, and people don't know me and they don't know my character, that it is in the witness of others that, that things begin to be established, that truth is revealed. And so God operates the same way. God is, is doing everything out in the open. He's not sitting here sneaking behind the scenes. He is perfectly fine with the heavenly host knowing what he's doing so that there will be a testimony at the throne room for the seat of judgment for humanity. That nobody will be able to go, you know, this picture of, well, God, that's not quite what happened, and everybody needs to know it. No, 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 there were watchers. They heard every word you said, and it was pinned right here, and then you get to give an account for it. Now, listen, this isn't about, like, making you feel guilty today. Uh, I, I, my words should never bring guilt and conviction to you, right? Only the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit at work in your life should be the thing that brings conviction. And I pray that the Holy Spirit does that in your life. I pray that the Holy Spirit does it in my life. Do I do everything right and everything perfect? Absolutely not. I do, I do not. I serve a God who loves me and who has filled the gap. But I do understand that God has an expectation on my life that I don't just throw it to the wind and do whatever I want because I love him, because he loves me. I'm going to put forth the effort. And there's a measurement that'll lay in there somehow when it comes time for judgment. Let's move on. So 
What are the consequences that we see of the sons of God, these Nephilim that are there in the passage? I'll go back here to verse 4. It says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So there is a consequence that will stir God to judgment in that moment, but it will also have an impact in the days after the flood. So I'm going to go through a bunch of scripture real quick. It's 11.26. I'm moving really hard to get you out on time. I want to help paint a picture, so kind of lean in with me as we go through several scriptures through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given our to the people of Lot for a possession. So you have the children of Israel. They are moving into position to take the promised land. God is giving them direction. Yes, God is going to send them in to wipe out people groups, okay? But he tells them in the process, and if you'll track with me, I think you're going to find this pretty amazing in just a moment. But he says that in this area, you're not to touch them. I'm navigating this situation, and it's not for you to navigate. Why? In verse 10, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they, also, they are also counted as uh, Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim, all right? So skip down to verse 19. And, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of uh, Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. And just real quick for you, the sons of Lot, that's going to be the Moabites. If you'll remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they exit out. His wife, they're all told, don't look back. His wife turns and looks back. She ends up falling under the judgment. And because of that, he feels like the world is over. His daughters think that judgment day has come. They get their dad drunk, and they believe that all of the world has been wiped out, and it's their job to replenish the earth. And so you have a group of people birthed out of incest, the Moabites, and and uh, God has still, still has Lot. He saw his favor with Lot. Lot, again, was the nephew of uh, uh, Abraham. There's just a lot in this whole story, uh, a lot about Lot. There you go. And so Lot has some favor, even in the midst of terrible decision-making. That's a sermon for a whole nother day, but there is some protection that is over him. Now watch this, verse 20. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim, of Rephaim, Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamazumim, and just fake it till you make it is what I say with some of these words, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they uh, dispossessed them and settled in their place. So who are these people? Again, I'm not going to take the time to break all of this down, but the Anakim, that word in the Hebrew translates to uh, uh, giants. Okay, and the scripture will call them the, defend, the descendants of the Nephilim. Verse, uh, we'll go to Numbers 13, verse 32. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. So Joshua has gone out on behalf of Moses to look at a land that they're to take. They come back, they give uh, the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height, verse 33, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, the Anakim, remember I said just a moment ago, who come from the Nephilim. And so Joshua comes back, he's with the other spies, and they're laying out this argument. There are the descendants of the Nephilim. Remember, it said, in those days and in the days after, and it goes on, and it says, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So not only did we feel inferior, but they saw us as inferior. Now, it is this lack of faith, and, and let me just, just so you get a really good picture it looks like an impossible situation, but because they don't trust that God is capable 
of, of, of doing what he said he would do because they come back and they operate in fear and they want to run and hide. God sends them into a time of wandering. What should have taken 12 days takes 40 years to come back to the opportunity to be able to take the land that was promised to them. So we go to Joshua chapter 11, verse 21, and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Enab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. This is important for us to understand because we will see a giant come out of Gath, right? Who will that be? Goliath, right? And so the, the scriptures laying this out for us here in Joshua, that there are, were still a handful of these Nephilim that existed in some of the surrounding lands, but when Joshua came in, they wiped them out. The land that was given to them had none left. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Now, this wasn't the end of war. They were able to rest from war, but war will find its way again, and these Nephilim continue to come. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 16. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. So this spear was somewhere in the range of about 80 pounds. So he's carrying a spear that weighs 80 pounds. The picture for us is that this is a big dude that shows up here in verse 16. Go over to verse 20, 2 Samuel 21. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descendant from the giants. So this, this picture in Genesis 6, it doesn't just end there. It's like this obscure passage that we get. And it's not just something that the writer of Genesis has kind of pulled together and made up. That's not what's going on. We find that for generations, these giants are being written of. Move to verse 21. And when, he taunted, and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hands of his servants. Now, there are several other passages. I don't have time to do all of them. Here's the thing. You might be asking, why does it matter? Why does it matter that there were all these giants? They kept getting their tails handed to them. This is why it matters. God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham that he would give him a land. And it is interesting that by the time the children of Israel get to the land, the land is inhabited by the Nephilim. That during their times of travel to get there, the enemy shows up. They surrounded the promised land. This is a consistent methodology of the adversary. That when God declares something, the enemy tries to pervert it. The enemy creates a false version. The enemy tries to take it captive. Why? Because the enemy understands it has to stop the prophetic promises of God in order to win the battle. 
I don't even have time to dive into some of, some of the stuff. In Genesis 3, when the serpent speaks, the serpent says that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I talked about this in, the, in my podcast this last week. That word for good is tov, and the word for evil is ra. When we get to the end of Genesis, and we're in those last couple of paragraphs, right, and we see that Joseph is sitting there with his brothers, and they're really worried that he's going to bring the hammer down on them, right? And, 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 and they're sitting here going, hey, you know, our dad, his last dying wish was that you would forgive us, and we just want to make sure you know that. And, and Joseph's like, look, guys, I'm not a dummy. I know you are still up to your tricks, but let me tell you something. Everything that you have meant for evil, right, the word raw, everything that you have meant for raw, right, God will use for tov. He will use it for good. So we begin Genesis Man, I just want to preach all day long. I'm sorry. We begin Genesis in chapter 1 with God creating the heavens and the earth, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Seven times it was tov. We don't see Ra at all until the serpent comes in and enters into his rebellion, and he wants Ra, which is what? It is death. In, the, in Genesis 1, when the, when the Tov is good, it is because life is being created. Ra is evil. It's bringing death, right? And so the, the enemy wants to bring death. He wants to bring destruction. And, and, jo- and so the writer of Genesis begins with life is good, evil is bad, Death is bad. And let me tell you something. This is what God will do. He's going to take all of the raw that has been unleashed and he's going to use it for good. He's going to use it for tov. And then we come into this whole like breakdown of these giants showing up, right? And bringing destruction. And what what does the enemy want to do? He wants to use evil to control everything, death to control everything. And God constantly uses it for good. Now, let me tell you, God uses it for good, but God does not tolerate evil. And so you have people who will make all, this is why it's so important for us to have a biblical perspective. We've got to understand scripture because we have, we have unbelievers around us who are saying, I don't know that I can believe in a God that would intentionally set a lying, deceiving, talking snake into the garden. The scripture doesn't teach us that that's what happened, right? And we have people who will say, well, I don't know how to serve a God that would send his people out to kill other people. But that's actually not the picture that we're given. What is actually happening here when, when these Nephilim are being destroyed, those are the people that God is sending them out. Time and time again, when he says, Joshua, when you go in and you take this particular land, you destroy it and you leave none behind, God is wiping out the evil of the enemy. God is not going after his children. He is going after the Nephilim, after these giants, these Anakim, because God's nature is consistently good. It's not challenged within Scripture. And yet, somehow, we allow unbelievers to dictate how it is that we interpret Scripture, and then we just, we just get all like locked down, and like, I don't know, I, he's, just, I, he's done some good things for me, so you believe what you believe to each his own. But if we understood Scripture, right, and this is what Ephesians 6 says, that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, right? And we're talking about the armor of God. Can I tell you something? It's not the armor of God like the bat suit. You don't hit a button and get sucked underground, and all of a sudden you come out with, like, all this armor, right? This, the, the armor of God comes from understanding and knowing the Word of God. That's why it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so when the enemy is stirring the hearts of others so that they'll sit here and say something and continue the narrative for why somebody shouldn't believe in God, if you understand Scripture, you're able to go, you know what, that's actually not what my Bible says. And so the enemy, he wants to use this evil. He wants to use it for uh, for death and destruction. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, I'm sorry about this. I think I've got a short in my... Testing. There we go. I'm going to try not to move. I don't know that it'll happen, but we're going to keep moving. We're going to run out of time. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only what? Raw. God makes things. It's good. It's tov. Man moves into a place of deception to where 
All that he thinks is raw. And with evil comes death, right? Death is destruction. We jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, right? Let me tell you what's kind of interesting and just maybe give you some, some perspective of how the enemy works and how awesome the Scripture is. This word violence is the word Hamas. And it's translated multiple times throughout the Old Testament, and it doesn't just translate as the word violence. It translates as cruelty, malicious, false witness, unrighteous. And God says that this becomes the thought of man. And so what does God do? He brings a flood. And we look at this and we say, so, so God just, this was just a simple judgment. He was angry and he wiped things out. And this, is, this was just his hand of wrath. You see, see, the writer here is hoping that you're gonna get something else here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? When we get the picture of what the world looked like before creation, the world was covered in water, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. Literally, God is hitting the reset button. Why is He hitting the reset button? He's hitting the reset button because of the righteousness found in one man. Noah. Maybe if you've been in church for any season of time, you've heard this, that Jesus would have died for your sins, even if it were only for you. Again, I don't have time, but the scriptures, this is, this is some really gut-wrenching text to read through. It says that God regretted that he had made man. Like he was hurting comes to Noah and he says, listen, I'm going to save you, your wife, your kids, their, their wives. You're going to build an ark because I'm resetting everything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to flood the earth and we're, we're going to have to do this. It's not going to be the same. It's not an equal reset. But I'm going to level the playing field because evil had taken over the hearts of men. So the writer here wants us to get a picture God's faithfulness to just one, to just one family. Can I tell you, I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know how, how, how bad it might be right now. Maybe you have a child who's running from God. Maybe, maybe you're on the brink of divorce. Maybe you're in here today and in your mind, you, you woke up this morning thinking about divorce. God wants to wipe away the raw. He wants to pull the evil from you. God wants to redeem your situation. And he'll do it if you're the only one he gets to redeem. If you're the only one that he can extend his grace and mercy to, he would do it again. You see, we get to be this new creation. You and I. This is the promise that we have. Let's stand to our feet as we close. commentaries in the New Testament. The book of Luke speaks to this rebellion. Jesus is navigating a situation with a demoniac, demon-possessed man. Peter will talk about this in his second book. I'll talk more about those in some of the added material we put out this week. But the translators putting this together they really do as faithful a job as they can to translate these things into English for us we just have to be careful not to translate their translations we have to be people who are willing to dive in and do a little extra research listen to what it is that others have pulled together 
tell you, we find a really powerful story here in the second rebellion. And it's, it's one of hope. And there might be consequences. They might be long-lasting, but God is faithful. Hope is alive. And his name is Jesus. So if you're in this place today and you would say, I have not made a decision to live for Jesus. Whether you would consider yourself to be some, a person who shows up at church, or maybe you're a guest today, but you would say, I have not surrendered to this Jesus. I have not taken the stand and believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth and really meant it that Jesus is Lord, that God has a plan for me. I want to invite you to make that decision today. It's not something that we make every week. It's not something that we make over and over. God is faithful. He is tugging at our hearts. He wants to claim us and call us his own. He wants the testimony of the spiritual world around us to be, I saw the moment that they made the decision. He wants the testimony of brothers and sisters here in the natural to be, I saw when they made the decision, the decision to, to make Jesus Lord because he's worthy of it. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment, if you're in this place and you would say, I want to make that confession of faith today. I want to declare Jesus Lord of my life. I know that he would have rescued me from the flood. If it had just been me, I believe he would have, he would have taken me and protected me. And today I wanna to declare him to be king of my life. If that's you in this place, heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. If you would just raise your hand, cause I wanna be in prayer with you you would just raise your hand. Amen. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to pray with you right now. Father, for those that made a decision today to know you, we lift them up to you and we stand rejoicing with them, declaring that today is a day of transformation in their lives. Today is the day that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Today is the day that their heart is penetrated with the truth that you love them so much that had it been only for them, you would have, you would have rescued them. You would save them. You would come and pay the, the final sacrifice for them. We love you and praise you. We thank you for your faithfulness. Now, if you're in this place today and you're just saying to yourself like, hey, I just, I just need to do some repenting. I need to stop justifying some things. I need to start leaning into scripture as being the authority for my life. What it says is truth. And I wanna do a better job at being committed to it. And I wanna pray for you if that's you. And we're gonna close with an opportunity just to engage in song and worship. If you're really wrestling with something and you want prayer, Scripture says, come to the elders of the church, allow them to lay hands on you, to be in agreement with you. We do that uh, at the end of service at the back. We have a prayer station and there'll be a prayer team that's back there ready to pray with you. Don't be embarrassed, embarrassed or discouraged. If there's anything you're wanting to see God do, allow us to be in prayer with you. But right now, heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, for those in this room that, that are really wrestling with disobedience or rebellion of their own. God, that you're looking on their hearts, you're looking at their lifestyle, and you're seeing that there are things in their lives that, 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 that are bringing them closer and closer to evil. And today they acknowledge that and they're saying, God, help me, save me, bring destruction to the evil in my life, but raise up the toe, the good, so that I can serve you. God, faithfully meet them here today. I know you will, for you are good. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for all you do. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us online. We hope you are impacted by the word of God you heard today. We consider resources like this to be supplemental and not a replacement for community. So if you don't have a home church, we'd love to invite you to check out City Church, but most importantly, find a church where you can be engaged in community. We want to help you navigate your next steps if you made a decision for Christ today or simply need prayer. If you want more information about our church, visit us online at citychurch.life. If you didn't get a chance to give online during service and would like to contribute financially, you can go to citychurch.life forward slash give. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you at church.